Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast here on Legal Talk Network. I am Caitlin Peterson, Delegate of Diversity and Inclusion for the Law Student Division and a 2L at Washington and Lee University here in Lexington, Virginia. Our show today is sponsored by the American Bar Association's Law Student Division. And in this monthly podcast, we cover topics of interest to you, law students, and recent graduates. We hope this show is a trusted resource for all our listeners. For this show, Professor Benjamin Davis, a professor of law at the University of Toledo, joins us today. Professor Benjamin Davis earned his JD from Harvard University School of Law, and he is now a professor of contracts, arbitration, and alternative dispute resolution at the University of Toledo. He is also a very involved member of the American Bar Association, and today he has agreed to talk to us about issues that pertain to his ABA membership, being a professor, and general advice that he has for students in fostering good relationships with students and faculty. Thank you, Professor, for joining us today. Great to be here, Caitlin, and please call me Ben. Yes, So, Ben, again, we are so glad that you're here today. And so I think I just want to start out because um, I met you in Chicago just this year and you had such a friendly persona to many of us students there. And you kind of got started talking a little bit about your professorship, but I would like to know more about it. So what got you started on the academic path of being a professor? I graduated from law school in ancient history times, 1983. And... um, At that time, I actually uh, did a JD MBA, and uh, at that point, um, I basically had no idea, I was 27, that I would ever want to be a law professor. I went off uh, to Europe to work as a development consultant, some management consultant, and then I worked in international arbitration for about 14 years. And uh, when I was coming along around 42, 43, looking for the next step in my career, I thought about all the lawyers I've been working with, and the happiest lawyers I met were the law professors. Uh, They had a lot of autonomy, um, independence to do research that they wanted to and all. And so all of a sudden, really then, it started to dawn on me. One of my former professors invited me back to speak to a group of students in uh, a seminar for JD MBAs, and I enjoyed being there, talking to them about what I was doing, and so I put my name into the process for uh, hiring as a law professor. And at the time, I was being told, or the information I read said that if I was over 27, there was no possibility. But I just went ahead and applied and was able to get a position, which I started at at Texas Wesleyan Law School in 2000. And then uh, from there, about three years in, I came up here to uh, Toledo, where I've been ever since. That's how it really happened. It seemed to me that the law professors I met were seeming to have really nice and interesting lives and a lot of freedom to do what they like to do in terms of the research. And then they worked with students developing. So that was a big part of it. 
Yes, sir. I hear that from a lot of my law professors, too, that they like to help students develop and that it's an easier lifestyle. Can you go a little bit more into how being a professor is different from the rest of your legal career? So, again, yeah, I'll say a couple different things. When you're a professor, uh, let's say tenure track, uh, after a certain number of years, there's an evaluation made whether you're going to have tenure or not. There are basically three parts to the job. One is your research, what you write about. One is your teaching, how you teach your classes. And the third is service, service to the law school, if you're at a university, service to the university, and more broader service. So you really have to focus on just those things. For example, one of the things that really helped me a lot when I first got into this, I was advised not to become a member of the bar in the state where I was teaching. Why? Because then you're not tempted to take clients. Working with clients, unless you're in a clinic, is not necessarily something that is going to be considered significant in a situation where you're really your research and your teaching are the most important things to do. And so what you do basically as a law professor, depending on the different schools that you're at on the tenure track, is that you work on those three things. You find there are topics, for example, things that I had seen when I worked that bothered me in what I'd seen and happened in a case and, or something and, and kind of bothered me. And so you do some research about that and develop. For example, uh, I remember when I first came in to teaching, um, there was a thing called the Uniform Domain Name Dispute Resolution Procedure that was being created for dealing with uh, what we used to call um, cyber squatting or where people would steal domain names. And there was a alternative dispute resolution mechanism put in place. And I was curious about how this worked because it was essentially a contract-based system where the standards to be looked at by the particular uh, dispute resolution person was uh, were, were, were contractual standards. They weren't law. They were things that were written into the contract. And so I was curious about that. And so I wrote a paper about that. You get curious about different things you see along the way. Um, when the, a lot of the torture stuff came up, I was very interested in that and started doing a lot of research about that. One thing I was curious about was, do we ever prosecute high-level civilians or military persons for torture in the United States? So I did some research on that. So well, just this process of seeing things that interest you for your research and then writing about them, submitting them to law reviews, making presentations at conferences, all of that is a part of the job. In addition to that, there's learning how to teach. As someone told me early on when I started teaching, you are the engine in the room. So if you're not giving lots of energy into what's happening in that room, the room is not going to be vibrating. So I was fortunate to be able to teach first-year contracts. Contracts is fun. And... Uh, also, upper-level uh, arbitration, ADR, international business transactions, international law. And your book, the book that you choose to be the book that you're going to use for the class, kind of like a uh, musician's instrument. You know, you've heard of the Stradivarius violin or something else. Each musician is comfortable, maybe a Stratocaster guitar. Each musician is comfortable with the instrument they use, and you had to choose a casebook that you were comfortable with that you thought would help you to be a, the best teacher possible. 
Now, here at Toledo, one of the things that I really like about it is that you are reviewed every year by the faculty. So at the end of the first year, their faculty will come in and uh, senior faculty come and watch your classes. Uh, your your uh, whatever articles you've written are sent out to be reviewed and uh, by peers and they're comment on them. And the faculty as a whole looks at what you're doing and see what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. And I like that because at the end of each year, you would hear where were the things you should keep doing and what are the things that you should correct. So that made the process at least, I think, simpler for me than what happens in some other schools where a person might only get a review in, say, the third year, right? So they've been working two and a half years. And what happens if after the third year, you know, everybody on the faculty doesn't really like what they write about? Well, they usually, on a five or six year tenure track, all of a sudden they've got to make up a lot of ground in the, the fourth and fifth year. And that could be, I imagine, very stressful. This way, I knew each step along the way what the faculty wanted and could correct. Similarly, my teaching reviewed by, was reviewed by several of my uh, senior faculty members. And so that way you can get a sense of ideas and people who shared very willingly their ideas on how to improve how you teach in the classroom. And that's been enormously helpful. People also help you by, for example, looking over your draft exam to see if it seems like it's a reasonable, if it needs some changes. That's the kind of collegial thing that can happen at the law school. On the service side, there are law school committees, there are university committees on which you can work, and then there's also work out in um, society. For example, I was contacted one day, uh, about five o'clock in the afternoon, it's around not too far from this time, where I got an email, I don't know why it was sent to me, where it said, can you be in Geneva uh, in two weeks? And knowing from my experience that those are opportunities where you have to say yes right away, at 5.01, I said yes. And uh, ultimately, the Society of American Law Teachers had me going to Geneva to present a shadow report of the Society of American Law Teachers about legal education to one of the UN human rights bodies that was evaluating U.S. compliance with some of its human rights obligations. So all of a sudden I was, by saying yes, and that Friday afternoon, all of a sudden I was in Geneva two or three weeks later, interacting with these members of this uh, U.N. human rights body. And those are the kind of things that in service that you can get involved with. Obviously, amicus briefs are something that you can work on too. Really, the breadth of service is up to you. So every year you look at an all three and that gives you a sense of how you're doing and then you come to a point where there is a decision about uh, tenure and uh, that's a process that will start with the faculty then the dean will make a recommendation then maybe for your university the university will make a recommendation then the provost will make a recommendation then the president will make a recommendation and it will be uh, the board of trustees of the university that will make the final decision whether you have tenure. So it's, it's a long and it, you know, and I'm not going to minimize the fact that it, it can be stressful and can be arduous to go through, but it is the standard process to become a tenured professor and uh, you just have to understand how it works at the particular school you're at and do what you need to do. As somebody once said to me, all tenure is local. So 
you know, the group of people who are evaluating you are the people who are at that particular school that you're at. And so you have to see how well things go with them. The other thing I'd say is that uh, one of the things that really helped me along the way in this process was a, he's now dead, but a senior uh, faculty member, very distinguished, told me that back in 1972, his tenure vote had been four yes and three no. And I realized that you didn't have to please everybody and have to, everything to be unanimous. And that was really a very important to, to, to realize that I, you know, if I have things that I want to work on that I think are important, even though maybe there's some people who are not interested in, that's fine. Another thing that I'd like to say about being a professor um, is that, you know, if I get hit by a car tomorrow, the only thing that really remains of what I've done as a professor are the students I've taught and the articles and writings that I've done. So rather than try to conform my writing to or my articles to what I think might be maybe somebody's idea of what I should write about and not actually develop my own voice in my own research agenda, that thought got me to say, you've got to write what you think you want to write, do the best job at it. So that if, you know, for posterity, that's your addition to the edifice of uh, legal education. And for students, uh, one of the blessings when you are a professor, uh, especially where you have students who may be the first law student in their family, maybe even the first one to go to college, um, but it's a, it's a blessing to be able to have these conversations with these students about their dreams. Sometimes I think that I'm the only one that they've ever really told their dreams to or can understand what their dreams are because no one in their family um, really understands what it is to be a lawyer. And so part of the pleasure is seeing students start off a little hesitant, gain confidence over the two or three years, and then see them go out and uh, do far better things than I've done uh, out in the real world. We just had elections on Tuesday here in Toledo, and one of my greatest pleasures in life was voting for two of my former students who were running for judge in two different races. I actually ran into one of them at the polling station. And just an enormously wonderful feeling to see how far they've gone in the path that they've taken, you know? So just, you know, those are the couple of things. Obviously with the service, you feel like you're helping something to progress, that's also a good thing too. It's a little long-winded, but I hope that gives a sense of what the fun of being a professor is. Yes, sir, it does. Thank you. And so, yeah, I know that you talk a lot about service and we've talked a lot about um, your service commitments too. And so just, I met you through the American Bar Association and we talked about some of your research. But as a professor, why do you feel that being part of the ABA is still valid? There are many professors who feel that being part of an organization like the American Bar Association may not be so valid because it's so big, nobody really knows what it's doing, or that it's not really going to help their research. So why have you, through all these years, maintained a strong ABA presence? And how do you feel that this helped your service or your professorship or any other aspects of your legal career? Well, sure. Well, one thing is um, how I got started in it. I was living in Paris when I uh, was working with the 
International Chamber of Commerce Court of Arbitration. And um, I became interested in technology and dispute resolution when I was there. I led a team for who did the um, creation of the first case management system there. In, uh, let's see, it was 1989, 1993. It was during the transition from uh, DOS to Windows, okay? I'll tell you how ancient this was. And we created the system while the technology was fundamentally changing pretty significantly. So that got me interested in how technology could help dispute resolution. And in fact, I think at some of the presentations that I did when I was uh, being considered by law schools, it's called the job talk. They're, during the course of the interview, when you're invited back to a school, you uh, have to make a presentation to the faculty at lunchtime, commonly called the job talk. But I, I talked about this stuff and I actually wrote uh, some articles before I got to teaching in law school on topics related. So I'll give you that background because when I got to teaching down in Texas Wesleyan, one of my colleagues there who was an ADR person pointed out that the ABA had created a task force on dispute resolution and electronic commerce. And that was exactly up my alley with what I was interested in working on. So I did some research, found out who was the chair, it was a guy named Bruce Myerson, and I wrote to him shamelessly promoting myself, I have to be in on your work. I have to be part of it. I don't care what I do, but please let me work on this. And the nicest thing about him was, there's lots of things that are nice about him, but what was really nice for me is that they created a position called assistant reporter working on that project. And so there was my first experience with the ABA on this task force on stuff that I was really interested in. But we did a report. The report, I think, if you take a look at it, it is robust. It's still valid. A lot of the things that it talks about how to do dispute resolution generally in electronic commerce and all that. But that got me involved with the section of dispute resolution in particular. I'm also a member of the international one because of all that international experience. But in the section of dispute resolution, and basically from then on in, it was pretty much um, when somebody at the ABA would ask me if I would do something, I said yes. And that's what it's been for 17 years. And I keep doing these things because they've all been tremendously interesting. Now, once in a while, I've had to shamelessly self-promote. There are presidential appointments sometimes every year with president of the ABA, the new president will make appointments of people for, for different parts of the organization. I mentioned before that I'd done some work on torture, and so uh, I kind of got into the national security space with my international law work too. And so um, I uh, put myself forward to try to become a member of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, which is the oldest standing committee of the ABA. And I was at, at a diversity event, and I met a former president of the ABA, I think at that, and told him, just in passing, I really would like to do this. I didn't really expect I would be appointed to this, but lo and behold, about, I don't know, a year later, that current president named me to that Standing Committee on Law and National Security which was also wonderful because then I started to go to these meetings and, you know, I met people like Michael Hayden and others and uh, everybody talked about Mueller now. Well, I met Mueller and I got to ask them questions directly about what was on my mind. And there was the 
Standing Committee's uh, annual review in uh, D.C., which is next week, and where you would have 600 people who are all from the National Security Establishment and got to go to those things. I mean, I guess it could have gone in before, but now I was going in and had a really great opportunity to talk with people about um, the different national security issues that bothered me. I was very fortunate to uh, meet a former head of the FBI, Judge Sessions, who uh, shared my concerns about the torture stuff. And that was to see such a venerable person to share the same concerns about torture as I did was like really reassuring that I was not crazy, that in fact that it was a totally legitimate way of looking at things. And those are all things that came through my ABA experience. As I've gone along in the section, um, I, you know, whatever the committee they had, they wanted they asked me to work on, I said, sure, I was a liaison to the pipeline committee of the ABA at one point, and I learned a lot about complex issues of uh, the pipeline to get into law school and elementary to K through 12 education issues around the country was able to read some really interesting stuff uh, that actually then helped me with uh, drafting a significant part of a Society of American Law Teachers shadow report on legal education for, say, I think it was 2012 or 13, where I went to Geneva again. So all of these things kind of wind together and give you deeper and greater knowledge. And what I like is that you are in, you know, the world of Lots of lawyers. I would mention one other thing. I hope this is at least funny, which is that uh, as a member of the international section, I was on a listserv and there was a guy in the Netherlands who was complaining about something and decided to write a resolution. And he presented it on the listserv. And I said, gee, that looks good to him, you know. And uh, he came back and said, well, would you like to sign on? And I said, yeah. And uh, so it ended up 12 ordinary members of the ABA, you know, not a section, not a division, not a form, just 12 members signed this. And uh, it was submitted to the top entity of the ABA, the House of Delegates, and was on the agenda at the House of Delegate meeting in Toronto at that time. And it turned out that under the rules, it was required that somebody had to present this two proposed resolutions. And Toledo is only five hours from Toronto. The guy was in the Netherlands. And so I said, well, I'll do that. And so I drove up to Toronto with my son and I presented these two resolutions to the House of Delegates. And it's an extraordinary experience if you've never been there where you have, you know, I don't know, it's like 200, 300 people that are there, your big jumbotrons and all that, and you're there presenting these resolutions to everybody. Um, they ultimately had a very low chance of passing, 12 members only. It hadn't been really talked with other sections and divisions to get their support, but it was a tremendous growth experience for me to go up there and make the pitch. So these are kind of things that come out of the blue. Uh, another thing that's wonderful, so I, I said I do dispute resolution. Well, last week we had a request for expedited blanket authority, which means that a section can speak 
directly to government on its own, rather with an ABA meeting, there was a request from the section on international law with regards to what they wanted to present to the U.S. trade representative about the dispute resolution mechanisms in the negotiations of NAFTA right now. So this came to me as the chair of the section. Uh, I think it came in on a Thursday, and it was supposed to, was supposed to give our answer of whether we objected or not by Tuesday. And so in that kind of short period, thanks to the wonderful work of our council members, of our uh, executive committee members, and of our committee chairs, basically shared the document with them and asked for feedback to know whether we should or should not object. And in the course of that, lots of wonderful ideas were brought forward, concerns and all that. And we got, it seemed like a consensus was reached, which was that we were not going to object, but we pointed out a number of things that we thought should be looked at by the people drafting. And so in that modest little way, you know, we're helping, and I get the chance to help as this professor from Toledo, Ohio, to help with maybe helping shape the future dispute resolution mechanism for the NAFTA treaty. That's pretty fun stuff for a guy who's an international guy. Oh, yeah. Very fun. And so it sounds like in your ABA career and with your professor career that you tend to work a lot collaboratively and you've made quite a name for yourself, as I'm sure you know, of being just a very good, friendly dude inside of the ABA. And also, I'm sure with being a friendly dude in the ABA, I'm sure your students also regard you as a pretty friendly professor. But I guess now what I'll ask is that of course, there are professors who are less friendly or less outgoing, at least on the outside. And so for students, sometimes, especially students like me who could be quite shy, we wonder what is the best way to foster a good relationship with a professor, especially sometimes if they may seem a little bit less willing or less open to form those types of relationships with students outside of class. So I think that they're... Uh Professors, believe it or not, are human beings, okay? And I'm sure that you run in as students to all kinds of people. People who are friendly, people who are more taciturn, people who are not friendly. Well, guess what? Professors make up all that bunch too. So there's a couple different things that I really empathize with students who feel that fear because I was the first lawyer in my, uh, first law student in my family and I, you know, I would walk up to professors' uh, door in Harvard Law School and open the door, and there was, you know, sort of a scowling secretary, you know, what do you as a 1L dare come in here, you know, and uh, want to speak to the great man, so to speak. And so I, I understand that feeling of intimidation, all right? But what I would say is that we are human. And secondly, if you are a student in a professor's class, you have to figure out what that professor is trying to teach you and make sure you understand it. Whether the person is a nice person or not, it makes no difference. The exam is going to come and you will either show your stuff in a way that the professor thinks is great, or you won't. So it's incumbent on you to kind of get out of your fearful space and focus mainly on, I would say, 
making sure you understand the material in the class. So I'll take contracts. I teach contracts in the first year. All right. So one of classic topics is offer, right? Do you know really how to think about an offer? If you're not sure at the end of the class that you've got it, go see the professor and say, professor, this is what I understand. Have I got it? Have I not got it? And listen to what the professor says. Write down the notes on that. If a professor has past exams that you can look through, go through and look at all of his or her exams. The essays, take a look at the essays. If they're timed essays, like usually they are, 30 minute, 90 minute, are they open book, are they closed book? After you've done your studying, if it's closed book, close the book, sit down with a pen and write out your best answer to the essay. Maybe the first time, not within the time limit, but over time. Because on the one hand, there's your knowledge of the subject from all your hard work. And then the other hand is during the stress of the exam, it's being able to get your knowledge down. That's the thing. There are people who know a lot, but don't get their knowledge down. One of the things, for example, that students sometimes forget in the first semester contracts, was I call it making contracts in first semester. We have a two-semester contract class, so first half making, second half breaking contracts. One of the things students sometimes forget is they get so hung up on finding the manifestation of mutual assent and offer acceptance and do this absolutely bang-up job on that. They don't mention anything about consideration. And, you know, you got to have consideration to have a classic contract. Well, it's those kind of blind spots that by practicing writing out the professor's exams or if not that, some other essay and have them looked at by your professor and give you some feedback long before any exam happens to help you understand. And one of the things that's nice about that is that you and the professor are focused on the topic that this professor loves to teach and that you're trying to learn. And as that happens, and as you have more contact with the professor about those things, I think, you know, you find out that they are, in fact, just human beings. And uh, I'll give you an, an example. I remember I had a student who early on, when she came into my office, she, she couldn't look me in the face. She couldn't look me in the eyes. She was always looking away, like, very much into deference. Finally, after, and she was working very hard, and she was showing me really good work that she was working on, you know. And I said to her, finally, please just stop looking away. Just talk to me. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll work this stuff out. I know you're working hard. I appreciate you working hard. And you saw her just finally relax and just go ahead and ask her questions and answer and all that. She did tremendously well at school. I think she's in the JAG Corps now. And it's just an example of that interaction with the professor. One of the things that really probably doesn't help you is if it's like six weeks into the semester and you ask the professor, do I really have to learn the rules? I mean, if the professor said you have to learn the rules the first day, the professor is serious about it, you know? And sometimes I felt like saying to people, you don't have to learn anything, okay? There will be an exam and you will take it and hopefully you'll have some stuff. But, uh, you know, you really have to take it upon yourself to really, can't emphasize enough, uh, make sure you understand what the professor is trying to teach. And if you're not sure that you understand, then you don't know it. So you make sure you go see the professor to make sure you understand it. 
You may like the professor, you may not like the professor. Hopefully, it turns out to be a good relationship. And that's a great thing because then that professor can be a reference for you for down the road. For example, clerkships I learned when I was going through the uh, process at 45 are good things to have if you're going to think about being a law professor. So I didn't know that when I was going through law school. Found that out later. So I see students applying for clerkships, asking me for letters of recommendation to help with those applications or job references. Another thing that can happen also is like here we have advanced research and writing. We have to write during your time over the three years. You have to write, uh, I think, four or five papers. Well, you can choose the professor with whom to write that. Now, some people say, well, what will I write about? And I tend to tell people it's really quite simple. You can write about something that you saw in your classes that bothered you. That's one thing. But another thing might be there might be an area of the law that you think you might be interested in working in. So find a topic in that area and work on that. And that way you'll learn about the area. You possibly can meet a lot of people who work in that area. And, uh, and then you work with a professor on, on fine-tuning that paper. Another thing is, I'll give you an example. We have a program which is uh, students who go in our human rights observers down in Guantanamo, all right? And it's an opportunity that's pretty straightforward for the students to get, to get nominated and uh, they're accepted by the military commission. They go down there and watch for a week. Every student who's gone down there is an alumni too. And I found it an enormously amazing experience. So a student has an enormous, amazing experience like that, or they have it in a clinic, or they have it working in a summer job, to write a paper about it. And that helps them to fine-tune their understanding of that experience. And then writing those papers is an opportunity to be working again with a professor who will critique their writing. If I could add one thing here, I would just want to say to you, that I was very fortunate in 2008 to go out to uh, Yellowstone to visit my best friend who passed away. Uh, I was invited out there by his dad. And uh, when I was out there to go fly fishing, one of the friends of his dad who was there was Sandra Day O'Connor. I mean, Justice O'Connor, I couldn't believe it when I walked into the breakfast room. There she was. They'd been friends since college. And so I went fly fishing with Sandra Day O'Connor and uh, about half the week there. And I asked her if she had a son or daughter in law school, what would she advise about what they should learn? And Sandra Day O'Connor said to me, first thing is learn to write. So all those writing teachers that you have, all those working through those memos and briefs and all that stuff, sometimes that's a lot of pain for people. Well, Sandra Day O'Connor says, that's the most important thing you need to do. Learn how to write. The second thing she said is you need to look at the equal protection jurisprudence of the Supreme Court because it's kind of like that's where the dogs are buried in the Supreme Court. So, you know, there's an example of how these things that you're doing with the writing teacher, for example, uh, something in your con law class, you know, with a little bit of knowledge of things like that can take you a long way towards understanding what's going on and hopefully having a good relationship with your professors. Yes, sir. Thank you. 
And so you've actually answered a lot of my um, questions about like exams and things and speaking just now. And so I just got one more fun one for you. But before we get to that, again, I'd just like to thank you for coming on the show today and for all the help that you've given me in listening to my hopes and dreams and helping make some of those things come true. So I'll look forward to seeing you at ABA Mid-Year this year in Vancouver. And again, just thank you so much for coming on the show today before we answer this last question. Okay, happy to be here. It's fun. It was great meeting you. Yes, sir. And so the last question I guess I'll ask is, you said Sandra Day O'Connor had her advice, but then what is your advice if you could give one piece of advice to law students now, especially something that you think is a hidden gem or that we don't know, what would be that one piece of advice that you would give? Well, what I would do is I would give you the advice that has stood the test of time for me, okay? I came out of law school at 27, JD MBA, and uh, now I am almost 62, all right? So that's 35 years. And in case any of you folks don't know this out there, that 35 years went like a snap of the fingers, okay? That's how fast it went. That's deep when you think of it. So I'm going to pass along to you the things that I say to the students here, the things that I say to my own kids. You can take it, you can leave it, whatever, but the stuff that stood the test of time for me. First is this. If you're in your 20s, do all the studies, advanced studies you imagine you ever want to do. So I was actually only going to do an MBA when I was uh, coming out of undergrad. I went to work for a couple of years. And it was there I started to see how much the law was important. And there was a, a guy I worked with who told me that. And that really opened my mind to going and doing the JD. And so I did the JD MBA. And that made all the difference uh, because obviously at 45 when I saw, I mean, I, I saw I could have this opportunity to go towards being a law professor. I was already well prepared. I had these opportunities that had prepared me and made it possible for me to go forward. So that's the first thing. If you're in your 20s, obviously, if you're not in your 20s, if you're in your 30s and all, it's a lot harder sometimes, especially if you've got family and kids and all that going on. I'm not saying that but it doesn't matter. If you want to do it, just do it. Because again, this life goes so fast. So first thing is to, if you're in your 20s, do all the studies you imagine. You'll be trading on that the rest of your life. The second thing, this is what my contract professor told us first year, and it stood the test of time, is that that famous life, that life you dream of having out there, in the, you know, after law school, that thing you live, what you want to have is that life that you imagine that maybe you not have told anybody else. Well, in case you wondered when that life starts, that life starts the day you leave law school. So you need to do and go towards that life right away when you uh, come out of law school. What does that mean? It means that when you're looking at different jobs, especially if you've got student loans and all that, sometimes people will look for a job and they'll take the job that's the highest paid because they say, I can pay off my student loans with that. But if it's not in something that you particularly like to do or are interested in doing, you may be placing yourself in a trap. And the trap is the following. You don't like doing it. It pays really well. And then what happens is after a couple years or so, it doesn't work out. So now you're looking for a new job. What do you have to sell? Is the ability to do something you don't like to do. It's really 
hard to make the leap to the thing you want to do from the thing that you don't like to do. That's one of the risks of taking the high paying job in something that you absolutely don't want to do. It might be to your advantage to take a lower paying job. And I know student loans, trust me, I understand that. But that is closer to what you think you'd like to do. Why? Because, because you think you'd like to do it, you'll do a better job. And you'll be able to explore that particular thing. So that's the thing that I tell students is go. For me, I had a choice of being a lawyer in New York or going over and doing development consulting in Paris. My vision was being an international guy. And I listened to that advice and I decided to go to Paris right away rather than be a lawyer in New York City. Those, and each time I've had to make a decision, that's the question I've asked. One of the things I'd like to do. In addition, doing that is that as you work along, and this is what my professor said too, after a couple, three years, maybe shorter, you wake up and you either love what you're doing, so keep doing it, or you don't. If you don't, then what you need to do is change to something else. Now, what is the something else to change to? Generally, it's gonna be really simple. You change to something you think you'd like to do. That's really all it is. And one thing also is as you have more jobs in your career, you can make a list of all the jobs you've had and the things you liked about each job and the things that you hated about each job. And you will see a bunch of characteristics that are the things that you liked about the job. That's the kind of environment where you maybe need to work and where you will blossom. And so you need to look for those kind of things. Another thing that I would say to you, which is kind of the fourth in this series, is really simple. Whatever you're going to do, you have to pay your dues. You have to learn how to do the job. And so as a consequence, it doesn't matter what area of the law you're in, you have to learn what you need to do. And so what you need to do is to try to look for people who you would be working with who would help you to master what you need to know to become that great lawyer. Everybody pays their dues. I don't know anybody who's come out of, the, out of law school and been put on the Supreme Court. You gotta earn it. You gotta earn your way. And even if you have the top grades at your law school, you don't know the practice in a particular town or a particular area of the world until you're out there doing it and seeing the kind of issues that arise. So a little bit of humility, even if you were number one of the number one of the number one, is useful because everybody has to pay their dues. But there's a corollary to this, which is that the only power you have, and you need to guard this jealously, is your power is in deciding where you're going to pay those dues, where you're going to spend your precious life learning how to be a lawyer. It may not feel like much when you're there desperately looking for a job or something like that, but ultimately you have that one power to decide whether you will let your time be spent with this group or that company or whatever, or you won't. And you have to think very crucially about it. That is the way, the place that you think that you will be able to pay your dues and to learn to be the kind of quality lawyer that you want to be. It's a little bit of power. You may not, you may think I'm just fooling around with it, but it really is because ultimately what you're doing is you're spending your life. I have one comment about student loans. If you were rich or your family was rich, 
you could finance your education out of your pocket with equity. That investment is paid for with equity. If you're not rich, if you're poor, then you will be financing that education more with debt. You may have some scholarships that help you. You may be working a job, all these, you know, it's a combination of things. Basically, these are the ways that you are financing what is this investment you're making in yourself, which is the legal education and the law degree. I like to analogize the law school cost that you pay. It's like a mortgage. And when you buy a house and you have to pay for it with a mortgage, the idea in buying that house and living in that house is the life you're going to have in that house. It is not about paying the mortgage, but it's about having the life, raising your family. Right now here in Toledo, it's a lot of raking leaves maybe, but it's living that life in that house. That's why you got the loan. That's the investment that you made to have that life. I like to think of your law degree is like that. It's this investment that you are doing so that you can live a certain life that you dream of. And so rather than having the tail wag the dog, which is the student loans dictating the life, you should make sure your life is the one that has meaning for you and that you pay your student loans off. And by the way, when I came out of law school in 1983, I think I owed $12,000 in student loans. It was the most enormous number I could ever imagine. I didn't know how I was going to pay it off, okay? People out there who listen to this are probably laughing, saying, you have no idea, dude. But I'm just saying to you, you know, that panic feeling about how you're going to do it, I had it. Everybody has it. But you figure a way out. And the thing is, in figuring out, make sure you don't lose perspective on the important thing of how you're living your life. You know, if that life is that life that you dreamed of, if it's, you know, for me, international is being overseas. Okay, so I'm seeing myself overseas, but it was really overseas working with people from a lot of different countries. So when I got to work at the ICC, there we were working with arbitrations with disputes between people from 100 countries, you see? And I was like in this international space and I, and it wasn't at the State Department like where my dad was, where you're representing the United States. I was just a private citizen, so I didn't have the weight of representing a country and everything I did. I just could be myself. All these kinds of things were like me finding the path that made me feel, made me feel happy in living the life that I was trying to do. Coming here to Toledo, another example of that, the possibility to teach the kind of classes that I like to teach. That's what interacting with the kind of students that I have so much fun working with. The ABA stuff, again, lots of fun. Working with lots of different people, done amazing things, learning from them. I learned so much recently about ombuds from one of the members of our council. A couple of members were working on a resolution on that. It's all of that. If anybody's ever seen the movie Tomorrowland, there's this great line that like, stuck with me. I watched it on TV the other night. I know it's going to sound corny because it's a Disney movie. But he said, you know, there's basically this thing his dad says to his 16-year-old daughter, which is that there are two wolves. One wolf goes towards despair and destruction. The other wolf goes to hope and opportunity. So which wolf wins? Really simple. The one you feed. So which one are you feeding? 
Are you feeding the despair and destruction? Are you feeding the hope and opportunity? I'm here to encourage you to feed the hope and opportunity side of things because there's a lot of important work that you can do and will do. Yes, sir. Thank you. And so thank you again, Ben, for coming on the show. And we hope you've enjoyed another episode of our podcast. We encourage you to subscribe to the ABA Law Student Podcast on iTunes so you don't miss an episode. And also take the time to rate us and review us as well. You can also reach us on Twitter at ABA LSD using the Law Student Podcast hashtag because we would love to hear what's on your mind. I'm Caitlin Peterson, and thank you for listening to the ABA Law Student Podcast here on Legal Talk Network. Until next time, take care. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember... U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBar.org forward slash law student. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.